The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes, you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of May 24th, 2021. Well, that trip to New York started out fun for the White Sox as they dressed up like Yoan Makata, but it didn't end well as the White Sox were swept for the first time this season, their first three-game losing streak of 2021 as well. And the White Sox are still in first place, though, with a 26-19 record. And they are one and a half games of Cleveland. So things are still okay. It's just how the White Sox lost these three games. And when wondering about if this White Sox team is not only good enough to win the American League Central, but can they win the American League pennant with the roster as is? We address that question plus bring you the minor league report as Jake Berger continues to hit, preview the upcoming White Sox vs. St. Louis Cardinals series, and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, yeah, the White Sox had a lot of fun. Uh, There was a lot of controversy, a lot of talk about Tony La Russa as the White Sox flew from Minneapolis to New York. And as they fly back home, I think there's going to be a lot of questions this Monday morning on, okay, this White Sox team is good, but are they that good to win the American League pennant? Yeah, we got a couple of questions about that in our Patreon mailbag too. And it seems like, well, I would say for the pennant, you know, given the vagaries of postseason play and how just, you know, all it takes is basically really good, strong starting pitching and a couple of key bullpen performances to sway a series. But if you're talking about like, could they win any other division? Could they stand out, you know, against, uh, you know, the, the Boston, New York, Toronto, uh, Tampa in one division, then Oakland and Houston another? I would say no. I would say they're kind of like the, 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 based on the way the Central has played so far, it almost feels like they're the top team in, uh, 
mid-major is too low, but maybe like the worst conference in the Power Five, <laughs> just one that maybe wouldn't get uh, all the AP votes to uh, you know crack the uh, playoff. That's kind of how they feel right now. They're they're a bit shorthanded uh, when it comes to the injury, the the big injuries, Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, etc. Uh, and we, we know that kind of, uh, I would say in the big picture, but series to series, they've been getting by without them. But sometimes when facing these, these good opponents in, you know, not their ballpark and, you know, just trying to, I guess, series that have that, that lend itself kind of a postseason atmosphere, you, you do realize that sometimes they're shorthanded. And this was one of those series. Yeah, the White Sox are 17-9 and against opponents in the American League Central, which is great. You want to have a great divisional record that will help you tremendously in winning your division. And if you win your division, you go to the postseason. And the White Sox, in their 120-plus years of a franchise, have never been to the postseason in back-to-back years. In anyone's lifetime, because I don't think the oldest person anymore in the world is a older than 120 years old, Jim. So I think that's a safe comment to make. No one in their lifetime has seen Mm -hmm. the White Sox make the postseason in back-to-back seasons. Uh, But outside of the American League Central, and again, it is early, uh, but they are 9-10 and outside of the American League Central. And it makes one wonder, well, are they just mediocre outside of the teams they face in the American League Central? And I don't necessarily think that. It's just... The way that they lost these three games, they continue to struggle against right-handed pitching. Uh, They obviously didn't capitalize against Jordan Montgomery in the first game. Montgomery pitched really well, but the White Sox, as far as the narrative, are indestructible against left-handed pitching. That's not the case. They've lost three times this season against left-handed pitching to two pitchers in particular, Mike Miner and Jordan Montgomery. So, Nobody really considers those two guys as top echelon left-handed starters in Major League Baseball, and they were able to keep the White Sox offense at bay. And uh, the bullpen, uh, they are not super, not the way that I thought they could be before the season, and there may be a little bit of a usage issue as well there. So I think those are the two big areas that White Sox fans after this weekend, Jim, are focusing on. So let's start with the offense. And... When it comes to the White Sox offense, I feel like I'm a broken record, and I've been saying this since last season ended. They really need another left-handed hitter in this lineup to help against right-handed pitching, and Mm -hmm. we we keep saying this. Like, Adamine isn't good enough. Jake Lamb is not good enough. Yasmani Grandal can help with the occasional home run, and he walks a lot, but this lineup has Yoan Makata and not much else going for it. Uh, on the left-handed side. And I, again, it just feels like, yep, the White Sox need another left-handed bat. Who is that going to be? And internally, that might be Gavin Sheets, but I think this is another shopping item list that Rick Hahn can go after before the trade deadline. Yeah, this is where the absence of Eloy Jimenez really stands out to me because I think the, you know Jimenez isn't... Um, he, he's not left-handed, but the way he hits as a righty, uh, mitigates platoon splits. Like he's got that very, very, very easy, relaxed power to right field. Like he doesn't need to pull the ball. He can, uh, you know, inside out pitches, he can go out and, you know, sometimes it seems like he's swinging a bat that's a foot and a half longer than is allowed just on how he can extend and just flick a ball that's off the plate out to right field. You know, those easy homers that we saw the Royals hitting into the uh, bullpen uh, or the craft cave in right field at uh, guaranteed rate, the way we saw uh, the cheap homer uh, into the first two rows into Yankee Stadium short porch. Like, those are the homers that he's supposed to hit and, and you know, mitigate that righty-lefty split that the White Sox have had. So that's the thing that's jumped out to me as we've seen these these cheap homers being hit and uh, and not having an answer for those, not having an answer for those, uh, you know, like counting on Adam Eaton to reach short porches or home run jet streams to right field. Like, that's, that's where I feel like Jimenez's absence is most pronounced. And, uh, you know, there's really no easy answer. Adam Engel, he's starting a rehab stint, so he, he can help a little bit in terms of just taking the load off Adam Eaton in right field. But he's not somebody who helps the White Sox hit righties better. Like everything, basically every in-house answer they have for the uh, problem of right-handed pitching comes down to 
um, yeah, kind of fingers crossed, like fingers crossed that Adam Eaton, uh, looks better and, and reverses his recent history. Fingers crossed that like Jake Lamb can somehow summon his you know best form with the Diamondbacks. Like just that kind of random luck slash good fortune that often seems to elude the White Sox when they try to shop at the bargain bin. That's kind of what they're hoping on right now. Until Jimenez comes back, maybe Luis Robert too, although you know Robert isn't quite that kind of hitter against righties. I think he was improving and I think he has the capability of having that that off-field power that makes it easier to hit good righties the way Jimenez does but for the time being yeah they're they're kind of lost and, and probably waiting for an outside addition because even you know watching the the Knights box scores going into the their first series away from Charlotte um, you know Gavin Sheets had an off week and I think that's kind of going to be off and on for a lot of hitters is just uh, when they're at Charlotte they look great they look like they could be promoted the next day when they go away from Charlotte maybe not yeah, the Chicago White Sox currently are 17 and 16 in 2021 against right-handed pitching. So they still have a winning record, and they're going to face right-handed pitching more uh, than they will face left-handed pitching in this upcoming season, where the White Sox are 9 and 3 against left-handed starters in 2021. But yeah, I mean, against the likes of Garrett Cole, they're going to need another left-handed bat, and whether it's internally or externally. This lineup needs another dependable left-handed bat. They thought they were getting that with Yasmani Grandal. And again, Grandal is walking and he provides home runs, but he's not hitting as well as he did last year. And then they thought Adamine can have, have you know help in this situation, and that's not necessarily happening. They brought in Jake Lamb at the last minute uh, to be another left-handed bat uh, off the bench, and you know the results are very sporadic with Jake Lamb. So, yeah, I, the White Sox need another left-handed bat. So there you go for those that love to parse through the league and aim for trade targets. That's one item on the wish list. The other item on the trade wish list, Jim, is, uh, and I can't believe I'm saying this, the White Sox need another reliever because this bullpen at the moment uh, is struggling and even when you're looking ahead, yeah, guys can bounce back and maybe they, as a unit, get back on track and they pitched the way that we thought they could um, before this season. But it really does appear that the Chicago White Sox, especially Rick Hahn, needs to go out and get another right-handed reliever, somebody that La Russa can trust to pitch in the, the seventh inning or eighth inning in high-leverage situations. That's not Michael Kopech. It, it seems like with Kopech, that's going to be the, I guess, where the plans hinge because we're seeing Larusa move Kopech more into, you know, traditional high, maybe not traditional because he wants two innings out of Kopech, but moving towards that, um, you know, dropping him in to get an inning of high leverage setup work, uh, the way that they hoped Cody Hoyer would do this year. And I can see that being the case, um, you know, just a matter right now with not having an extra starter, not really having a clear sixth starter um, in Charlotte, you know, Jimmy Lambert, Jonathan Stever, Reynaldo Lopez, they're all not quite there yet to where you feel like any of them can step in. So, you know, the way they've managed Kopech right now is good to cover, you know, basically the way, the way they are, they can cover both needs in a hurry pretty quickly. Like they could, they might need one outing to stretch out Kopech if they needed to, but they'd get them there. Um, you know, they can obviously shift them into one inning work basically right away. Just more a matter of whether they feel they're robbing, uh, the possibility of stretching them out if a starter goes down. But, uh, yeah, based on, I think that the two things are frustrating is one, you know, guys are struggling and two, like the gains, uh, when you when you see like Aaron Bummer have eight outings in a row and then he comes back and throws two rough ones and then you have Michael Kopech comes in and, and he gives up the cheap opposite field homer and that's unfortunate but just still like you're not getting the instant answer there either Cody Hoyer has a really good outing and then he gets roughed up the next like it'd be nice if you know it'd almost be easier if these guys like say like Hoyer and and Bummer um, were maybe just like a little less promising when they look so good <laughs> just because hmm. it feels like uh you know that's that's what kind of keeps Kopech in limbo is just not knowing like whether Hoyer can actually turn the corner when he has an outing like he did on Sunday so uh, or Matt Foster when he when his stuff is working he looks like a, he, maybe he can slide up for a seventh inning or Evan Marshall when he has you know, right now he's alternating good outings and bad outings it's it's tough 
And uh, that's, I think, probably the hardest thing to handle. Just like, you know, it kind of reminds me of Jimenez talking about his defense. And sometimes, you know, he has the ability to make a really good play once in a while, but also just, you know, makes a mess of much easier ones to the point where just like, man, I wish you were just a butcher all over so we could just relegate you to DH and you couldn't fight it. And it almost feels like the same way with some of the White Sox right-handed relievers where just somebody step up and the rest of you sit down just to make it easier and they're not quite doing it. So yeah, it's tough. And yeah, the other, yeah, I guess the other guy I look at too is Garrett Crochet. And then you mentioned usage issues and I know Liam Hendricks is the obvious one, Uh, but Crochet just Getting the inning of mop-up work when he's looked good coming back off the IL, uh, that's a curious usage for him. And, you know, he seems like somebody who can mitigate uh, the struggles they've had from the right side. Uh, Just because when he's on, I think hitters of both-handedness have a hard time squaring him up. You mentioned usage. That's also a very popular popular topic right now with the White Sox and Tony La Russa. Uh, Do we know for any particular reason why La Russa does not like using Liam Hendricks in the ninth inning in a tie game where using Hendricks can help you get into extra innings. Do we, do we know for sure why La Russa is opting to not use his closer in these situations and holding out for him to pitch with the lead in the 10th inning? Aside from just like 2004 strategy. No. I mean, cause that used to be the conventional wisdom when, there was a whole lot more conventional wisdom around closers. And you, know, you heard a lot more about like, you know, I'm thinking like guys like Matt Caps or Joe Borowski, if you remember those guys, um, just, you know, having a couple of good years with good save percentages, not lockdown stuff, but just, you know, they somehow were ordained the closer saved like 28 out of 30 games. And they said, okay, there's a closer. And uh, it was those kind of guys who like had to save in closer situations. And if they weren't, in traditional closer situations and they faltered. It was just like, well, he didn't have the adrenaline or they, you know, that's not a closer role and they can only get up for one kind of role. And I think as the idea of leverage has evolved and the idea of like, you know, lockdown situations and sometimes the saves are in the eighth inning based on when the order is coming up, I think we've seen, and also I guess the import, the way postseason managing has shifted has made it easier for yeah, I guess more advanced managers and more, I guess, uh, flexible, pliable managers to, you know, I, I guess be amorphous with that role and allow guys like, you know, Andrew Miller to step up and be super savers, basically. Uh, Hendrick seems like, you know, I thought when the White Sox had acquired him, I thought that was the reason why they acquired him is not just because they wanted a closer, but because they wanted somebody who could handle two innings once in a while or, handle back-to-back-to-back days. Somebody who just, you know, they they saw what he did for Oakland against them in the wildcard series and said, we want that guy. And they said their their, uh, interest in him predated that. But it was just an impressive display of endurance for a reliever, especially a a reliever who uses that much power. Like just, you know, having that ugly outing, but coming back the next day and, and, and nailing it down. Like coming back from 49 pitches and throwing 20 more. That's what I thought they were getting. And so to see the aversion, you know, see that old, you know, like decades old strategy of just like, no, the closer only saves, saves. <laughs> like he's not come in before saves. That's not what a closer does. And, and see that apply for a guy like Hendricks, not like a guy like Colome, who is, you know, kind of along the lines of that, you know, guy with closer mystique. You know, a guy like Hendricks, who is maybe the best reliever in all of baseball last year. That's what I don't get. And that seems like it's, it runs counter to the whole idea of why they got him. They wanted their own Andrew Miller. They wanted their own Josh Hader. They wanted somebody who could, they could hand the ball to in a postseason game and handle innings uh, eight and nine, maybe even a bit of the seventh too, based on how easy it was going or what was needed. And to see him, you know, to see basically Hendricks face one batter over the course of three games, two of which were decided by walk-offs because he didn't want Hendricks to be in there for the ninth inning. You want to save him for a 10th inning that was not guaranteed. And and running with a lesser reliever in his second inning to handle a ninth. That's what's baffling. Is that, and not only was he, like I could see maybe going to Hoyer for the ninth if Hoyer wasn't used and be like, well, you know, we want to save Hendricks for the 10th, but we like Hoyer just as much for the ninth. Like, I get it. You know, I, I don't get it, but I get it. Um, just because it is at least a fresh arm and somebody that they haven't seen and is coming in straight from the bullpen versus sitting in the dugout. Like that's, you know, that's more traditional relief usage and, and 
usage they're more accustomed to. But to roll over a reliever, a lesser reliever, into a second inning, that's what I don't get. That's, I think, what makes it doubly confusing. It's not just, you know, a rigid closer roll. It's a rigid closer roll plus a non-rigid usage of a previous reliever who's not as good. So when we had over the weekend our pregame show that we co-hosted with our friends from the 108, Cherizi mentioned this and... <laughs> he brought the proceedings to a halt if I think I know what you're talking about. Yes. So let's let's bring that in. I have to honestly ask this question. Does Tony La Russa understand how the three batter minimum rule works? I, I think he does, but... It almost seems to me like when he was studying up on it in preparation for this year that he figured out a better way to do it. (laughs) Clearly not. (laughs) And it's, yeah. And he's determined to prove his better way of doing it. You don't have the, you don't have the guys for it. Yeah. No, it's, but it's, uh. The fact that we had, you know, that that Treasy could ask that question and not not be sure, just because of his other shortcomings with the rule book, and uh, you know, the fact that we couldn't, just like we couldn't definitively answer whether Larusa ordered Mercedes to be thrown at, like it's a ridiculous question on its pre- or a ridiculous uh, premise uh, to say like that the Larusa ordered. Um, Tyler Duffy to throw at your mean Mercedes, but the way he defended Duffy and the way he defended Rocco Baldelli and the umpires, the way they went about their business and the whole idea of plausible deniability, it, you know, it just, if he were somehow to be able to command Duffy to do that, that's what it would look like. And it's kind of the same thing. Like if he didn't understand the three batter minimum and thought that like the next reliever, if a reliever started the inning after facing three batters, the, uh, that inning, like he would have to face three batters in the fresh inning, like, uh, that's yeah, very, <laughs> like very, it's... yeah, very troublesome. If he, yeah. if he truly doesn't like if James Fegan asked him, all right, so Marshall gets the final out in the previous inning. Uh, why are you starting him in the next inning? And then if Larusa at some point in the season says, well, Marshall's got to face at least three hitters. I am going to lose my mind. I I'm, I'm going to lose my mind, Jim, that, that would be, that's worse than not understanding the extra innings rule that the pitcher doesn't have to run. Yeah. No, I I don't think that's the case. And I think with bummer, there were legitimate matchup possibilities that worked on their behalf on bummer's uh, behalf, but you know, he kind of screwed it up with the, you know, falling behind the first guy. And I don't think he's quite as sharp to handle the two inning, the, the very aggressive usage that Rick Renteria was able to use for him when bummer was, you know, had the, full command of his powers. Like, I don't think he's quite there yet. So I think you do have to handle somebody like him gingerly. And, and just like with Marshall, you know, the, when, in when on Friday's game, when he had to uh, pitch the eighth, he Houdini'd out of the eighth and then started the ninth. Like when you have guys like Marshall and bummer who are just starting to kind of build up some semblance of a uh, uh, return to their track record. I think you have to take it an inning at a time. Like you can't, uh, you can't get carried away. Kind of like, you know, almost like, uh, you know, when you're working out or if you're trying to train for a race or something like that, like if you feel good, like don't push it because you're going to pay for it you know, the day after. Uh, you have to, you know, condition your muscles. You have to condition just usage patterns. And, you know, it's not quite that rigid, I don't think. But, you know, just with Hendricks being as fresh as he was and being so little used and, and seeing what he looked like the second day, when he was used on back-to-back days against the Twins and how much sharper he looked the second day. Uh, after it seemed like he, you know, got some game situation back, uh, I, I guess on his arm and in, you know, kind of in his brain, his muscle memory. I, I don't get why, um, you know, Hendricks was avoided on Friday. Then I don't get why he was avoided until one batter when the bases loaded and he couldn't, you know, he had no margin for error. Like why bring him in then? Like, you know, when he's fresh, when he hasn't pitched at all, I, I, that's what I don't get. Yeah, Liam Hendricks was the big offseason acquisition, and I agree with you, Jim, in the sense of the thought process of Rick Hahn acquiring Liam Hendricks for this type of multi-inning usage. Not you know, not only not just being saved for save situations, but he's the guy when you need to get out of a jam in a high leverage situation. It's just that Rick Hahn acquired 
this type of reliever in Liam Hendricks. And at least to me, it, it's pretty clear that Tony La Russa doesn't know how to use Liam Hendricks. And he's got to he's got to figure it out. Or considers him like, you know, like Jason Isringhausen or something like that, like a good closer from his past, but not not a not a fireman, not a um, relief ace. Like that's, I think, what Rick Hahn thought he was getting. Well, they got to Larus has got to figure it out. I don't I guess, you know, we've also talked about this point, but is this a moment in which if Ethan Katz doesn't agree with Larusa, he's got to say something as the pitching coach? Yeah, I don't know. Like it's, you know, we've talked about it before with the coaching staff and just not hearing about anybody. And it seems like Ethan Katz probably has his hands full already, just being his very first job in the majors, having some projects in the rotation, having, you know, uh, some, some emergencies in the bullpen. Uh, like I would imagine he would defer to LaRusse at this point in his career like not because he's getting to know these guys too. So I don't, you know, you know, Don Cooper with his, all his um, institutional knowledge of relievers year over year. Uh, I think he probably had the credibility and the knowledge and, and just where, you know, Robin Ventura like <laughs> to uh, Rick Renteria could go to him and say like, what do you think? You know, him better than I do. But with this case, when you have a fresh pitching coach and a fresh manager, like neither of them can say that. And so I imagine you defer to the Hall of Famer baseball person. But I think it also extends beyond cats to, you know, like we haven't heard really anything about Miguel Cairo this year. We haven't heard anything about Shelly Duncan this year. We've heard a little bit about Jerry Naren, but we've heard more about Jerry Naren than Miguel Cairo, even though Cairo is the bench coach. So it's weird. And it seems like, yes, there are a lot of guys in the dugout, but we only hear about La Russa. Well, they got to figure it out because this was a good litmus test as far as on how the White Sox could perform in the postseason. We're still months away, but the way that this season is going so far, I still feel like these two teams are going to cross paths in the postseason. And you're right, Jim. Great starting pitching can take you far in the postseason. And Carlos Rodon was awesome. He was awesome in that first game. Uh, Dylan Cease was all right. You know, Dylan Cease was really good for the first three innings. And then the fourth inning, he buckled. And then the fifth inning didn't get any better. And Keuchel is Keuchel. Uh, so I think the White Sox on the starting pitching front when they're facing these types of teams like the New York Yankees and teams they could be facing in the postseason, I'm not worried about the starting pitching. I think the starting pitcher, starting pitchers for the White Sox can put the team in a position to win. But the lack of left-handed hitting against right-handed, pitch, right-handed pitchers and this type of bullpen usage uh, needs to be cleaned up. Because this is how you could have a great regular season, win your division, and have high hopes of winning your pennant, uh, your league's pennant, and making the World Series. But if you mismanaged your bullpen like the White Sox did in this series against the Yankees, that's how you get swept. That's how you mm-hmm. suffer two walk-off losses. Well, it was funny on Friday, uh, coming off the Minnesota series and you know, uh, the idea of Larusa facing the New York media, and that didn't turn out. You know, I, I think he's impervious enough to criticism where that New York didn't make it worse in regards to just the, the they wrote their stories, but I don't think they made it worse uh, based on what Larusa and the White Sox and White Sox fans had already endured and fought each other over uh, regarding the Minnesota stuff and the Yermin Mercedes stuff. But you're watching the game on Friday, and you know he got six great innings from Carlos Rodon, like. And then he pulled him. I was like, okay, that's a nice preemptive hook. Like, okay. I mean, like, yeah, I could see Rodon going an inning longer, but it's a long season. You're trying to, you know, manage him. So that's fine. Bringing in Kopech. Kopech gives up the unlucky homer, but just like I liked Kopech, you know, going to him there and trying to get uh, two innings. And then, you know, Kopech couldn't get the second inning done. Evan Marshall comes in. It's like, well, I didn't like that move as much, but at the same time, like we, he needed a ground ball and Marshall can get ground balls better than other people in the bullpen. And remember, I remember having this conversation with you about, you know, Matt Foster, like needing a double play and going to Matt Foster, who doesn't get ground balls. Like you went to Evan Marshall, who can get a ground ball and he did get a ground ball. He kept the ball in the infield, cut down the run at home. Like, okay. He, you know, he pinch hit with Adam Eaton. Adam Eaton scored a run like Okay, good. But then, like, Evan Marshall handles ninth, and you're just like, oh. Like, we were almost done talking about him for one day. 
and 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 it you know, reared its ugly head. And then the next day it was Garrett Cole, and like, okay, that's fine. But then Sunday, like, just kind of the same thing. Like Dallas Keuchel, you know, not quite getting it done, uh, you know, not quite there. But the offense rallying back. Um, you know, and Andrew Vaughn pinch hitting, delivering a moment, great. Uh, but then you know, just the second inning, we're like, oh, like I, said, I just want to stop talking about him, and we can't. No, and Monday morning because David Ross uses Craig Kimbrell in the ninth inning in a zero-zero game, uh, getting the Cubs and Cardinals into extra inning successfully. You're gonna have that just juxtaposition in Chicago sports radio that. All the shows you're going to be talking about on all the radio stations um, Monday morning. Why doesn't Larusa take a page out of David Ross's manager playbook? And I just laugh because it's like it shouldn't be that way. It should be the other way because Larusa's the experienced guy and David Ross is in his second year managing. But hopefully this gets cleaned up because the White Sox have another tough series as they fly home and. Speaking of La Russa and his old team, the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, they're going to be visiting the Chicago White Sox and playing three games against the White Sox. And we will be previewing that series upcoming in the show. But coming up next after a quick word from our sponsors, Jim brings you this week's Minor League Report. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff. And it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. All right, minor league report time. We'll start in Charlotte, where Jake Berger continues to be the story of the season. He wrapped up his week against Durham by going 3-for-5 with a pair of doubles. He went 7-for-21 this week, and six of his seven hits went for extra bases, including three homers. If you want to pick a nit, his strikeout rate is on the wrong side of 30%, but considering he's looked better than anybody could have ever imagined in the other facets of the game, you can cut him some slack. His thunder made up for a quieter week from Gavin Sheets, who went 3-for-21 in Durham. In between is Blake Rutherford, who hit 348 while playing five of the six games against the Bulls, but with only one double and zero walks while striking out seven times. The pitching side is considerably rougher, save Jimmy Lambert, who finally had his first encouraging outing of the year after three rough ones to start the season. Lambert allowed just a solo homer over three innings against Durham on Friday. Jonathan Stever and Reynaldo Lopez conversely lasted only one laborious inning in each of their starts over the past week. There's similarly little help on the horizon in the bullpen unless somebody like Felix Paulino looks like a swingman. The pitching is the biggest reason why the Knights are 7-11 on the season. Down in Birmingham, Mike Adolfo put it together in a hurry. Even with a quiet Sunday, Adolfo went 8-for-18 with two homers, two doubles, and just three strikeouts over five games. He's now hitting 259 with a 328 on base percentage and a 552 slugging percentage on the season, which is pretty much right where you want him. Before Adolfo emerged, Romy Gonzalez was the best story on the Barons. He missed a week recently, but after a slow couple games back, he regained his stroke by going 2-for-3 with a home run walk on Sunday. He's back to hitting 395 with an OPS of 1317. Outside of a really rough night for Cade McClure, who gave up nine runs while recording just four outs last Wednesday, Birmingham's pitching has been stout. Blake Battenfield continues to lead the staff. He's 3-0 with a 0.90 ERA through four starts. Ofredi Gomez continues to intrigue me, as he's done some excellent work in long relief. He pitched six scoreless innings over the six-game set against Montgomery, and has recorded 23 strikeouts over 14 and one-thirds innings. The Barons split the six-game set with the Biscuits, but that's still good enough to maintain their hold of first place in their division in the AA South. Over in Winston-Salem, the Dash dropped four of six in their series against the Jersey Shore Blue Claws, but they're still a respectable 9-9 in the year. The offense showed signs of life later in the week. After scoring just three runs over their first three games, they posted 18 runs over the back half of the series, including 11 on Sunday. Still, We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, the Dash only have one regular with an OPS of 700 over the last week, and that's Alex Destino at 701. Bryce Bush surfaced on Thursday for the first time in a week, but he went 0 for 5 with three strikeouts and wasn't seen for the rest of the series. That said, the pitching has been a strength, headlined by Davis Martin in his five perfect innings on Friday. He was one of the six dash pitchers to go unscored upon over the last week, and that doesn't include Jason Billis, who struck out eight against zero walks over five innings of two-run ball, showing continued progress on control issues that plagued his profile over the last couple of years. Kannapolis is still bringing up the rear in most regards, as they dropped five of six to Columbia to fall to two and 16 on the season. That said, the Cannonballers showed signs of life besides their first home win in the history of Atrium Health Ballpark. Jose Rodriguez continued his excellent start, and some help has arrived in the form of DJ Gladney, who belted a couple of homers. Benjamin Bailey went 8-for-24. It wasn't 8-for-24 with no extra base hits or walks, but that's still progress for the 19-year-old. There are fits and starts elsewhere, but overall there's a little more depth to an offense that was no hit a week ago. Jared Kelly also notched a much-needed success, throwing three scoreless innings on Saturday that lowered his ERA on the season down to an even 9. Matthew Thompson and Drew Dahlquist have been decent as well, not overpowering but scattering hits and keeping the cannonballers in their respective games. The run prevention failures seem to take the form of blow-up innings. Whether it's Bailey Horn coming off the injured list and giving up three runs over an inning, a couple of ballers or relievers having to wear it, or the defense committing six errors in a game. I suppose the silver lining is that they have all sorts of ways to get better. All of minor league baseball is off on Mondays this year, and when play resumes on Tuesday, the Knights will be in Norfolk, the Barons drive an hour north to play the Rocket City Trash Pandas, the Dash head home to host Hickory, and the Cannonballers travel to play the Carolina Mudcats in Zebulon, North Carolina. For the ones who know that a little late is always too late, and that the clock doesn't stop just because you're missing a part, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry. And our KeepStock inventory management solutions help ensure you have the right stuff in the right place at exactly the right time. Visit Granger.com slash KeepStock to learn more. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the Sox Machine podcast. The Chicago White Sox next opponent is the St. Louis Cardinals who currently lead the National League Central. They had a very entertaining, tough series against the Chicago Cubs, uh, but they still lead the National League Central. And as they arrive to the south side of Chicago in this battle between the division leaders of the Central Divisions, your pitching problems for this series on Monday, May 24th, this is a 7.10 p.m. Central Time game. We talked about left-handed starters and how the White Sox do against them. They're going to get another opportunity to face a left-handed starter. This time it's Quan Young Kim of the St. Louis Cardinals, who has a 2.73 ERA this season. He's going up against former St. Louis Cardinal Lance Lynn who is really having a good season. He's got a sub-2 ERA for the White Sox, 1.55 on the season, and he is 4-1. Tuesday at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, grab your popcorn. This is the matchup that we would love to see. These guys are best friends. It is going to be Jack Flaherty, who is 8-0 to start this season. Whether or not you are a big fan of pitching wins, uh, to see a pitcher like Jack Flaherty undefeated so far at 8-0 is impressive. He's got a 2.53 ERA this season. And he's facing his buddy, Lucas Giolito, which Giolito was awesome uh, against the Minnesota Twins. So hopefully uh, those good vibes carry over against the St. Louis Cardinals team. And then Wednesday, it is an afternoon tilt. This is a 1.10 p.m. Central time start as the Cardinals have to head out of town uh, the White Sox will be staying in town for Memorial Day weekend as the Baltimore Orioles come 
to visit. And it's John Gant for the St. Louis Cardinals against Carlos Rodon. So now we're getting Giolito and Rodon in back-to-back starts. And uh, I, I like that. As a matter of fact, you've got Lynn, Giolito, and Rodon. So on the starting pitching front for the White Sox, this is a, a really strong threesome for the Sox to face the St. Louis Cardinals. So that should give White Sox fans a lot of confidence going into this series, Jim. But it goes back to what we were just talking about on how the series against the Yankees transpired. This offense is going to have to figure out a way to hit against this Cardinals pitching staff, in which the Cardinals have a strong pitching staff, especially when you're looking at Tuesday with Jack Flaherty on the mound. I'm looking more toward, you know, I mean, the Flaherty-Giolito uh, matchup is really cool. I'm looking forward to that, but it kind of feels like, you know, having watched what the White Sox did or didn't do against Garrett Cole, that, you know, I don't necessarily have high hopes. I have high hopes for Giolito. I don't necessarily, yeah, I think it's going to be like the Giolito Bieber matchup in which we're just going to have to hope that, uh, you know, they, they luck into a run or Giolito's at his best just to squeeze out a win. But I think John Gant, that start, the, the finale, is the start I'm looking at to see just where the White Sox are because Gant, you know, his, uh, He's kind of a reliever, kind of a starter. He's more of a, you know, they're, they're using him in the rotation this year, but he has a history of relief, but his fastball has taken a hit since jumping to the rotation. So, you know, he's had a lot of walks. He's, uh, his, you know, peripherals are not good relative to his ERA. So you figure like it's bound to catch up to him at some point, but he's also a righty who gets ground balls. Like I think his, his ground ball rate is just above 50%. So he's also the kind of ordinary righty who has been giving the White Sox fits this year. So I think that's that's the kind of starter I look at, like just like the the Matt Shoemaker mold of starter, just Jamison Tyon. You know, just having seen that start. Um, you know, guys who aren't getting strikeouts, guys don't who don't have massive swing and miss stuff, but guys who just keep the White Sox in check through weak contact or balls on the ground, racing walks, double plays. I think that's going to be the kind of the template of White Sox game I think we need to pay attention to because great starters are great starters. And, you know, ideally for October, they'll show the ability to beat uh, a top flight ace. But for the time being, until like Jimenez comes back, till Robert comes back, until some additions are made, I think in order to maintain their position in the central, I do think they have to weather, you know, maybe absorb the blows from facing a Flaherty type and make up for it with facing a Gantt type. And right now they haven't, they've been in a slump when it comes to doing that and it'd be nice to see them break out of that. For the St. Louis Cardinals offensively, Paul Goldschmidt's off to another slow start. He's hitting 249 with a 300 on base percentage and slugging 407. Not the type of Paul Goldschmidt performance we have been pretty much uh, expecting to see, especially from his days in Arizona and then moving over to St. Louis in that blockbuster trade. And that's the thing about the St. Louis Cardinals, Jim, is that they are not afraid to pull these type of mega trades because one season it's Paul Goldschmidt, the next season they get Nolan Arenado. And Nolan Arenado is proving that he can hit outside of Coors Field. I know we got that. I got that argument all the time because I love watching Nolan Arenado play, and it would it was a pipe dream, Jim. Mm-hmm. But I would have loved to see Nolan Arenado in a White Sox uniform. And all I ever heard from fans all over is that well, he can't hit outside of Coors Field. Well, the dude's hitting two ninety one with a three forty five on base percentage, and he's slugging five forty seven. He's got ten home runs and fourteen doubles. Uh, and he's only struck out 26 times in 179 at bats. Uh, he can hit. He is one of the premier players in this league. And we're going to get a chance to to watch Nolan Arenado do his thing. But when you're looking at the rest of the St. Louis Cardinals offense, uh, there's really nobody else that scares you. Yadier Molina is, is hitting well, especially for power. Uh, he's got seven home runs. Dylan Carlson, it's unclear if I know how much he's going to be available uh, for this series for St. Louis. Uh, he's hitting well, but that's it as far as offensively. The St. Louis Cardinals, and maybe I this is a bad reverse jinx here. Uh, maybe I will be <laughs> influencing the St. Louis Cardinals to hit well this series. But you know, outside of Nolan Arenado and maybe outside of Yadier Molina. There's nobody that's hitting all that well for St. Louis. So I'm expecting more low-scoring games again for the White Sox in this series, Jim, uh, especially with how well St. Louis pitches. 
Which means, again, like we talked about with the Yankees series, Tony LaRusso's management of the bullpen and how the bullpen performs is going to be under the microscope. Especially against his former team. Like, that's going to be a whole new batch of storylines. Uh, I guess, you know, with the Cardinals offense, like, it seems like their outfield is starting to slowly get it together. You know, O'Neill and Bader and Carlson uh, starting to look like threats in one regard or another. Like, they can hit the occasional homer, and Carlson's drawing walks. Uh, so they might be able to get together. But, yeah, they're basically two guys who can, you know, who can beat them. Like, you basically stay away from, especially stay away from Goldschmidt. I think Arenado is probably... Not quite the hitter that Goldschmidt is, but you know, Aaron is just the complete package in every other regard, and he's he's heated up as you've mentioned. So, stay away from those guys, and yeah, it it, it seems like the pitching should rebound. Especially, it looks like looking at their splits that they have problems with right-handed pitching as well, uh, up and down the lineup, or at least you know, for as a team. So, uh, the White Sox should you know this would theoretically be a good opportunity for the White Sox. Woeful right-handed relief brigade to uh, kind of straighten it out here. Yeah, it would be big if they could win this series because they have four games against the Baltimore Orioles over Memorial Day weekend. And and I tweeted this out, but you know I wouldn't be surprised if the White Sox win six out of seven games this week against the Bird teams in St. Louis and Baltimore. And then you have some White Sox fans say, why were we ever worried about what happened in New York? But I think that even if they do win six out of seven, they're still going to need another left-handed hitter, and they're still going to need help in the bullpen, no matter how successful this week could be for the White Sox. But I'm expecting another fun, tight series for the White Sox, and unlike in New York, hopefully the White Sox are on the the good side of the results, and they pick up some wins against the first-place team in the National League Central because you have a bunch of Chicago Cubs fans that are rooting for the White Sox in these three games as uh, the Cubs are starting to inch closer to first place in the National League Central. So we'll see on how this series breaks down. Jim and I will have Sox Machine Live uh, later this week on Wednesday, May 26th in the evening after the afternoon tilt between St. Louis and the White Sox. So we'll be recapping that series then. And you can look forward to that episode of Sox Machine Live. But you guys had so many questions for us this week, both in as far as our Patreon supporters. You guys have a lot of bonus P.O. Sox questions. So let's answer those questions next in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where we had so many questions this week from our Patreon supporters, which you can sign up at patreon.com slash Machine. that all of our questions come from our Patreon supporters this week. And Jim, let's dive in because, again, we got a lot of questions. And for our Patreon supporters listening to the Patreon version of this podcast, we got a lot of bonus P.O. Sox questions. So stick around as we answer those. But the first round of questions here, Jim, the first question we've got comes from Derek King. And Derek wrote to us, it's too early to talk about an immediate change. But how long is your Mercedes's leash? His OPS is 725 in May before the Sunday game. He has one home run in May off a position player. If he keeps his May performance up, when do the White Sox consider a change? And if a change is made, who do you reckon will take his place at DH? Well, you know, I think he's the the way he's struggling or the way he's regressing is gentle. Uh, The question is whether it's a general form of regression that will allow him to regroup and hit with power again, or whether this is just kind of a slow fade into a, an average slash below average hitter. And you look at the, you know, two components uh, of the first two components of a slash line, 262 batting average, 333 on base percentage. That's fine. Like that shows that the at bats are competitive and that he's not an automatic out, but yeah, he's not hitting for power. And like when he hits a single, uh, like, say, with two outs, just kind of punches a single through the right side with his, like, no-stride, two-strike approach, you still think, well, it's going to take two or three hits to score him. Like, just to get him across the plate. Uh, you're going to need uh, at least uh, two good at-bats with after two outs, uh, and that doesn't really do a lot. So I think there is an effect of just 
you know, when you factor in that he you know, can't create runs or bases with his legs, that uh, you're going to see the, the power is more necessary for him than it is for somebody uh, who, who can actually help out defensively once in a while. There are really no better uses of the uh, position right now. I think, you know, should this keep up and should he be like somebody who, who struggles to slug 400, say, then I think, you know, he's still going to be a part of it. I think it would just be more of a matter of not having him in every lineup and not having him in the heart of every lineup, like not having him, like it seems like he would be better off batting behind a Yasmani Grandal who gets on base with walks because he can occasionally punch a single uh, versus uh, you know batting in front of him and then having somebody who can't really run uh, or or score from second necessarily if Grandal moves him up with a walk. So there's that part component of the batting order. And then I think once Adam Engel comes back, uh, I think you know, there are opportunities to rotate guys in and out of the DH spot, whether it's, you know, um, you know, having Andrew Vaughn at DH, having Adam Eaton at DH to, you know, get him off his legs, Jose Abreu a little bit, just to, uh, you know, allow guys whose legs might not be feeling 100% to get a half a day off. Uh, and then you can sit Mercedes for that, but then rotate him back in when the matchup's more favorable. I think that's pretty much how I'm looking at the position right now, because I think the, um, you know, when you look at the, uh, the velocity of the pitches he's turned around for homers, they're all pretty much unimpressive. I think there's like one or two fastballs on the bunch, but, you know, no real high heat. He gets by, you know, more from being like a, a an artful hitter rather than somebody with like really elite bat speed who can turn stuff around. So when you're looking at somebody who can like, I guess, dominate uh, good pitching, I don't think he's that guy. I think he's somebody who survives against good pitching and looks okay doing it. But the impact, as you said, is muted. So... Should this be like a permanent feature, not some way he's regrouping and will adjust later to hit with more of an impact, then I can just see him seeding uh, some playing time. But until Jimenez comes back, until Robert comes back, I think he's still probably a better choice for that position than you know pretty much anybody else who doesn't need a rest. Well, Derek, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Ben. And Ben is asking, what do the White Sox do about Nick Madrigal's toot blands? Yeah, it's uh, kind of like his defense. It's pretty much something I think you just need to let him try to play through. And he had two pace running outs pretty much uh, negating uh, two, well, not important hits, but like basically two hits that pose scoring threats. He you know, singled and then got caught in between first and second on a sinking liner to right and got forced out at second. Then he got thrown out easily trying to score from third after his triple uh, because he just broke for home on contact and was out by like 15 feet. And, you know, we've talked about four and I think, you know, there are two areas of his base running. One is like the coaching staff needing to learn how fast he is. And I think that's more or less been solved. Um, you don't see the bad sends involving him anymore. Uh, just because he's uh, you know, he's proven that he's can't run from first to third on good center fielder arms and might not be a great bet to score from second to home on good outfielder arms. So it seems like he's been sent more conservatively. As for the other stuff, you know, it, it's a lot like the defensive discussion when it comes to his ability to process situations. Um, you know, with defense, it's like the internal clock. Uh, the moment something doesn't go right defensively how much time do you have to regroup and still get the runner like he seems to lose the concept of that and it almost seems like the same thing you know maybe not the exact same thing to, uh in base running but close to it to where you know he just sees a base sees an opportunity thinks he needs to get here at this time and just loses other factors um you, you know, how many outs just where the outfielder was positioned where the infielder was positioned and uh losing track of that. So maybe that's something he grows out of as he gets used to no longer being the out efforts players at the major league level, the way he kind of dominated through that way in college and in the minor leagues. But, you know, it's also something that we've talked about at the end of the season, that if he's still this guy who can hit okay, like, you know, hits 300 and showing a little bit more pop um, to where he can, you know, have the occasional homer and extra base hit and is not just you know, a complete void when it comes to isolated power, but also isn't offering much in the way of defense or base running. And then I think, you know, it does pose an interesting question for the White Sox for whether they go about supplementing the position, whether they consider trading him, replacing him. 
because uh, if they have like another Alejandro Diazza, um, you know, who's, you know, Diazza was a good hitter. He was a decent outfielder when not playing center, not a good base runner. Like, you know, he's somebody who had pros and cons and, you know, they, they, uh, the, the, his ability to offset his cons was kind of based on how much the White Sox were asking from him. And it's kind of the same thing with Madrigal. Like if they need him to be a fixture, it's probably going to be disappointing. If they need him just to hold down the position to be the worst infielder in the infield, they can live with that. Uh, but when it come, you know, when they have this kind of pronounced flaw uh, against right-handed pitching, and they need somebody who can help against right-handed pitching, and second base is a way to do that, do you maybe trade Madrigal to make that happen to facilitate uh, yeah, a left-handed bat getting in there at second base because Madrigal is not a difference maker? That's that's a question I think he's going to have to work to stave off by the end of the year. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Andrew Siegel, and Andrew's asking, given these three issues, outfield play, right-handed bullpen arms, Tony La Russa bullpen management, which is the most urgent to fix and which is the most likely to be fixed? Well, I think the bullpen one is the most urgent and likely just because it's all the solutions are internal right now. Like, you know, they theoretically think they have all the guys they need on hand. They're not going to trade this early for a reliever. They're not going to trade this early for an outfielder. So they basically, you know, for probably the next month have to figure out who can actually stay in medium leverage situations and higher. Like will Cody Hoyer figure it out? Will Evan Marshall write the ship at all? Will Michael Kopech be good in a relief role? Do we need him as a starter? Uh, you know, those questions that we talked about earlier. I think, you know, when it comes to outfielders, and I've seen some chatter come up, um, you know, some columns already starting to talk about, you know, who needs what and who's available. Still think it's probably a month early from actually being able to solve the outfield from the outside. So I think it's going to be a matter of, you know, Adam Engel when he comes back, using him in the role that was originally intended as a right-handed caddy for um, Adam Eaton and also like a defensive replacement who is not Billy Hamilton. And that should help a little bit. And I think, you know, that's a marginal gain. And, and I think, you know, some of the relief ideas that we have, like limiting guys who are having good innings to one inning rather than two, I think that's another marginal idea. But I think as we saw with the finale of the Yankee series, like, these marginal decisions do add up sometimes into wins and allow you to steal a game or allow you to lose a game. And I think that's something that's going to have to be worked on over the next month is these marginal situations, uh, platoons, uh, relief appearances, starter length, uh, uh, you know, slow hooks, fast uh, or slow hooks, uh, long leashes, uh, that sort of thing. You know, starter trust, all these, uh, you know, and it sucks because, when you're talking about marginal wins, that makes the manager more important and makes you talk about them more. And I'm not really encouraged about that direction, but I think that's where the White Sox are right now is just having to dance with who they brought or who's left and uh, hoping that Tony La Russa and Ethan Katz and the coaches that we know are there but haven't heard from uh, learn how to use these guys a little bit better. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your question. And on the outfield play, I think – the White Sox are hoping to get some good news as far as with Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert uh, on the injury front. But you mentioned Adam Engel. I remember, Jim, in spring training, Adam Engel should be available for the first homestand. Then it was the second homestand. Mm-hmm. Then the third homestand. We are now in the fourth homestand. And uh, he's starting a minor league assignment, so maybe by the fifth homestand, the White Sox will finally have Adam Engel in tow. I just bring that up because... Yeah. You know, we've heard, well, Adam Engel's a fast healer and he should be able to bounce back. I don't know as far as if we still fully understand the severity of Luis Roberts' injury and have a firm timetable when he can return. And the same thing with Aloy Jimenez. So at this moment, I think just from a preparation standpoint, like you could hope for the best, but prepare for the worst, that Rick Hahn still needs to prepare for the worst. And you mentioned as far as the internal option, there's also Brian Goodwin. But if he's not already in Chicago, I'm not sure what the White Sox are hoping uh, after they added Brian Goodwin. And maybe he's probably asking that same question of why am I not with the White Sox at this moment? Why am I in AAA? <laughs> well, I th- well, I think you look at his Charlotte performance and you see why. Right. 
A lot of strikeouts. Yeah, but it's still, I think he left the Pittsburgh <laughs> organization because he's thinking, oh, great, I have an opportunity to play in the majors with the White Sox, and, and that's not happening. So, yeah, I think for the outfield play, I, I, I'm, I'm not resigned to the fact, but I think that there's enough, I don't want to call it excuses as well, but uh, the White Sox may just look at this situation with the outfield and say, we've got internal options. We're just going to ride with our internal options and hope for good injury news. Yeah, although that reminds me of like, Carlos Rodon is going to be the our, our uh, acquisition Mid-season of the deadline. acquisition. Yeah, Nate yeah. Jones is going to be our bullpen upgrade at the deadline. <laughs> they didn't yeah. quite happen. So, and, and you mentioned quick healer and that just every time I hear quick healer, I, I automatically think of Adam Dunn and his uh, appendicitis and him saying, I'm a quick healer like Wolverine. And then he batted 159. Like, <laughs> it's yeah. just my, so whenever you hear quick healer, just think of that and take it down a notch. Right. And that's why, like, yeah, maybe the White Sox can get Luis Robert and Aloy Jimenez back, but they still need to prepare that they may not come back this season. You can't bank your season on those two guys returning at this moment. Uh, But Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Paul Riker and Paul is asking, which contract will the White Sox regret the most? Yasmani Grandal, Dallas Keuchel, or Liam Hendricks? Adam Eaton. <laughs> do you re- think... Do you I think, reject the premise. Do you think that they regret that? No, I just reject the premise of the question. Uh, just, I don't want to really talk about, re- you know, I, I guess, regretting spending when the White Sox actually spend and solve problems, even if they didn't solve them at the top of the market you know, with Dallas Keuchel, even if they solve the top of the market at closer and catchers, which tend to have... Uh, lower prices because of the demands of the position. Um, you just be happy they spent. <laughs> like, uh, Grandel and Keuchel got them to a postseason. You know, obviously it was a shortened season and uh, they weren't planning for a 60-game season in the pandemic. But, you know, for the first season, they did their jobs. Uh, second season right now, they're not necessarily doing their jobs but right now, but they're, they're helping more than they're hurting. And like catcher, you need two catchers. Uh, pitchers need five pitchers. Like they're doing okay right now. So... I don't see a point to start like drumming up like regrets yet uh, when they had shortcomings elsewhere, like shortcomings with hiring the manager, shortcomings with addressing right field where they just like Adam Eaton, just jumping ahead of everybody to sign Adam Eaton and and consider that position solved uh, before seeing the market play out for, uh, you know, perhaps signings later or trades later, like just, not doing that. Like that's, I think where I'd rather see the regret place. Like, should we have tried to do more rather than did we try to do too much? So I reject the premise. Well, there we've had this conversation about allocation of funds. Like again, I stumped for this guy. Michael Brantley could really help the white Sox right now. And would you rather given him 54 million then $54 million to Liam Hendricks, in which your manager doesn't use him properly. In hindsight, yeah, you probably go the Michael Brantley way, knowing that, okay, he can play left field, and he's a good left-handed bat, so he addresses you know, two areas of concerns for the White Sox at the moment. And yeah, you'd be, you'd be, glad, you'd be good with that, but that's in hindsight. So I, I, I'm with you, Jim. And, you know, this type of spending does encourage agents to take the White Sox seriously when Rick Hahn calls them, uh, which is important, especially if you want the White Sox to go after the big ticket free agents. Uh, but, yeah, I don't think there's any regret. I, And I don't know if they even regret signing Adam Eaton. But we could have a discussion later on in this season, especially at the end of the season, as far as thought process and looking to next offseason on the targets that they made this previous offseason. Because right now the best move that they made was DFA, DFA uh, Carlos Rodon and then bring him back <laughs> for you're $30 million. Dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Yep. I got the, the technicality wrong. Uh, non-tendering. Carlos Rodon and bring him back. That was that's the best offseason move the White Sox have made this this season. So Paul, thank you so much for your question. 
And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Socks. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, I strongly recommend that you sign up for our Patreon because our Patreon supporters, which is well over 500 now, uh, they flood our mailbox every single week. So if you go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine, you can sign up to become a friend uh, of the podcast and also the website. With your Patreon subscription, we have subscriptions starting at $2, $3, $5, or $10 a month. You get exclusive content, ad-free versions of the podcast and the website. And you get also bonus content as well with the podcast with the bonus P.O. Sox questions in which Jim and I answer all of the P.O. Sox questions that get submitted to us. And we release many of those as bonus P.O. Sox questions. So if you enjoy our work, and you want more, go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this Socks Machine podcast. Again, Jim and I will have uh, Socks Machine live after the White Sox Cardinals series. That's going to be Wednesday night on September 26th. We'll have that on YouTube and on SocksMachine.com. And if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube page, you can do so at YouTube.com slash Socks Machine. You can also follow us on Twitter at Socks Machine. And you can follow me on Twitter at SoxMachine underscore Josh. You can listen to the Socks Machine podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And the Socks Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. At Simple Mobile, you get the no contract advantage. Those other mobile companies make you think you're in control, but you're really not. Simple Mobile is different. You can get a powerful nationwide 5G network all without a contract. It's the reliability you need when you need it, with no mystery fees, no activation fees, and no contract ever. Simple Mobile. Out with the old, in with the simple. 5G-capable device and SIM required. Actual availability, coverage, and speed may vary. 5G network not available in all areas. 5G upload speeds not yet available. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.